We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Welcome to another edition of the Josh Hendrickson Show. I'm Neil McCready, joined as always by the head of the um, economics department at the University of Mississippi, one Dr. Josh Hendrickson. It's a special edition of the show. I say that. We moved it up a week. We haven't really talked about next week. We're getting closer to Christmas, obviously. Next week, there's a chance I'm going to have some uh, Ole Miss football obligations, so it makes sense for us to knock this one out. Plus, there were some things we wanted to talk about. So, Josh, welcome into the show. Thanks. Ready to talk about all the excitement. There's, there's always stuff happening in, the, happening in our world. But we're going to start with something happening in your world because you – you got a little, hey, welcome to my world, I should say, you know, where if you talk into a microphone for any length of time in things that are recorded and then distributed to the, out into the, the ether, it's par for the course. It comes with the territory that you're occasionally going to be uh, maligned, questioned, sometimes attacked, uh, whatever the case may be. So you got a little bit of this. After uh, after our most recent podcast, a um, someone on Twitter X um, sent to me at my Twitter, which is at Neil McCready, says Mr. Hendrickson, which is the first insult right there because you, you have a doctorate. Mr. Hendrickson was totally fine with, if not outright advocating for, imposing whatever form of tyranny necessary on the unvaccinated. Uh, press him on some of the topics you bring up and watch him squirm like every other academic. This was in response to your tweet on, uh, actually a tweet from 2021, where you said, it's Economic Forces Day. Today I return to my favorite topic, externalities. I also violate two of my rules, one, writing about current events, and two, writing about things people care about. So he he came back at me about you. Um. I, I, I don't remember you being tyrannical whatsoever about um, punishing the unvaccinated back during the pandemic. I, that's, that is not my recollection, but feel free to, to uh, refresh my, my, my mind. Yeah, so to be honest, I don't, I, don't really, I don't really know how he came up with that interpretation. So what he sent you was, I'm assuming it's a he, I have no idea. Um, <clears throat> what he sent you is... Um, a link to my Substack economic forces that I write with uh, my friend, Brian, who's also an economist. And uh, it was a piece from September, 2021. And the piece was called, uh, where are the vaccine 
subsidies. And so, first of all, to give a little background, September 2021, like what most people were talking about is, right, like the vaccines rolled out mm-hmm. and people weren't getting them. And the and the government about a, about a month after the uh, what was it called? what was the variant that came out that that was the one they really used to scare the shit out of everybody. Like pardon my language. Delta maybe is that Delta? That doesn't sound right. But regard the Omicron, yeah. Omicron, Omicron variant. Yeah. That was the one that was put out. That was oh no, this one, this one specifically, this one attacks young people. See, this was the one. This was one that your boy here. I I, <laughs> I bit this bait because we were good, right? First, first round of COVID went through our house, and I was like, that's it. Oh, we're good. And I did not want my kids to get vaccinated. But my daughters at the time, both in college, and I'm going to hand this back to you, but I'm setting the stage. I'm trying to refresh people's memories about the, all the this, this stuff that happened. I refer to them as the lies, but stuff. I think it's been proven that it was a lie. It was a setup. Um, they were concerned, rightfully so, that – well, this is going to go on for a long time and we're ready to be young people and live our lives and go to concerts and go to games and go to things. And to do that, we're going to have to prove that we're vaccinated. And so then this Omicron scare comes out and I'm like, well, maybe you should. I don't know. I mean, what do you And they're like, we're just going to get it. Is that okay? And I was like, yeah, I guess so. And then I immediately regretted it and, and regret it to this day. I view it as the biggest parental failure of my life with beyond a shadow of a doubt. Luckily, I did not let my son do it, and I'm glad because boys have been uh, much more maligned physically from the, from the the, uh, the vaccine than, than females have, thank God. But um, regardless, uh, that's kind of the, the time frame there. Yeah, and so what people were worried about at the time was like, or like especially like the Biden administration and things were like, why you know why aren't people getting more? Why, why aren't more people getting vaccinated? Um, like what, um, you know, they were, they, they were instituting mandates. Uh, so for people like me, um, you know, who work for places that get some level of federal funding, like it was, it was going to be mandated. I mean, they, that ended up getting overturned in the courts. Uh, but it was, but you know, uh, federal government employees had it mandated. Uh, anybody who accepts federal funding had it mandated. And that was the policy was the mandates. Okay. So I'll give you, uh, some background on what I was thinking when I wrote this, because I think that this matters, although, you know, um, we can get into the substance in a second. What I was really thinking about here is uh, there's no economic justification whatsoever for doing the mandates. Like there's no economic justification for doing the mandates, and I'll get into why in a second. But so the p- whole point of my post was to kind of make that point, but make it in a purely economic argument, right? So like, no, so I'm, I'm not going to involve my personal opinions. I'm not going to involve, uh, my political opinions. I'm just going to use economic analysis and I'm going to, and and I'm going to talk about why this is bad. Okay. And so regarding the substance of the piece, so the substance of the piece, I kind of started off and I said, okay, so how do we typically think about vaccines, just vaccines in general, not this particular one, just vaccines in general. And I said, there's basically two ways that you can think about it, but both of them, um, are covered by something in economics that we call externalities. So what's an externality? An externality is something that like if you and I engage in trade, that our actions by engaging in that trade affect somebody else without being reflected with, without uh, that being reflected in the price. So like an obvious example of this is like pollution. Okay. So um, I am 
you know, like I'm a wholesaler, I'm buying something from you, you produce something in a factory, the factory pollutes. Okay. So whatever I'm buying from you, that price is not going to reflect the cost on society of the pollution that's created in order to, to do it. And so like a natural question in economics is, is like, how do we deal with that problem? Like, so how do you, how do you deal with the, with the pollution? When it comes to vaccines, the way that people apply this externality argument is in one of two ways. One way is, is that they say, okay, if you're vaccinated, you are actually providing a benefit to other people, um, even if they're not vaccinated. So they're third party people are getting this benefit because you're vaccinated. So you're less likely to get sick, which means you're less likely to get them sick. That's the, that's the argument. An alternative way that you could think about this is in terms of externalities is you could say that unvaccinated people are imposing a cost on other people, right? So this is just the flip side of the same coin, right? You can think about it as either vaccinated people are providing a benefit um, to, to others or you can think about it as unvaccinated people are providing a cost. It's the flip side of the same coin, right? If you're not vaccinated, then you're more likely to get sick. You're more likely to spread it, et cetera, et cetera. Now, we can come back to whether that's true in this case. But what I was doing is I'm outlining the argument for vaccines, okay? And so this is how people in economics would typically think about a vaccine is that, you know, um, either it's providing this benefit um, to other people, in which case you should subsidize people for it, right? You should give them some kind of payment in exchange for getting the vaccine because they are creating a benefit that goes to other people, but it's not being reflected in prices. And so what that means is, is that the total benefit that people could get out of it is not actually being incorporated into the price. And so people would tend to like not get enough, not enough people would get it. Right. And so the idea is you subsidize people that will get, you know, enough people to get it. It will provide them with an incentive uh, uh, to get it. <clears throat> the, and then the alternative to that is, is that if you think about not getting vaccinated as imposing a cost, the way that you would do that is you would say, okay, you're imposing a cost on someone else. And so this gets back to the pollution example. How do you deal with that? Well, in the pollution example, you would tax the pollution. And so what I go into in this uh, post is I basically say, okay, so you've got two alternatives here. One, one is you could offer people subsidies um, to go out and get vaccinated. So just say, hey, it's up to you uh, to get vaccinated. But if you're going to get vaccinated, we'll give you, you know, some payment for doing so. Incentive. Right. If you think about it as a cost, you could say, okay, if you don't get vaccinated, we're going to impose a tax on you for not being vaccinated. Okay. Um, now, a lot of people would say, okay, these are just two equivalent policies. Like I could design a subsidy and a tax, and a tax that would get the exact same outcome in terms of the number of people vaccinated. That, that's what a textbook would say, is that like actually we can just do either one. And so the problem with that argument is that what that does is it sort of frames the argument um, in a new in a new way, right? Because if I can either use a tax or I can use a subsidy, it seems like the only difference between the policies is how much it costs the government, right? Because in one scenario, it's actually generating revenue for the government through the tax. In the other scenario, it's um, you know it's costing the government money because they're giving out these these subsidies. And so then what I did was, as I said, actually, this is not equivalent at all. And this is where I think he started thinking about, okay, like uh, I'm, uh, you know, I'm talking about tyranny. And, you know, when I describe what I'm about to describe, I will say like, that, yeah, this, you know, th this does sound like a disaster. Because what I said was, is like, actually, if you tried to implement this tax, 
if you try to implement this tax, it would be really, really hard to implement because how would you implement the tax? You couldn't just tax unvaccinated people because you're not what you're trying to tax is not your vaccination status. What you're trying to tax is the cost that an unvaccinated person would be imposing. Right. And so in that so in that context, if you were um, if if you were just taxing every unvaccinated person the same, an unvaccinated person that let, never left their house and an unvaccinated person that's just out doing everything would be taxed the exact same amount. And so but that's not that's not the purpose of the tax. But then the question is like, well, how would you actually identify this? Right. Like there's no way to identify it. Like one way is you could just put a tax on like consumption because people who are out in public you know um are consuming things and so if you're out in public you're just paying more but again that doesn't make any sense either because like how do you even implement that tax like because somebody who's out in public for 10 minutes and somebody who's out in public for an hour they're not imposing the same costs and so the point that I that I tried to make is like this would require like really crazy a really crazy tax scheme right like you would have to like have grocery stores checking people's vaccination status and you'd have to have people um you know you you would have to have um you know ways of identifying you know like uh like these costs that people are imposing on other people and the whole point that i was trying to make here and the point that i actually make in in the piece is i said like this is completely infeasible right like the 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 cost of trying to implement something like this forget the tyr- the tyrannical part i will agree that like this would require tyrannical solutions right but um, but under no circumstances did I advocate those tyrannical solutions. What I said is, is like, if you tried to implement this tax, like it would be impossible. Like it would just be impossible. And so, and, and so then I said, you know, so, um, so that suggests that like the policy, that the, that a tax and a subsidy are actually not equivalent policies, even though that's what the textbook would tell you. And then what I talked about is then what the Biden administration actually did. And I talked about mandates. And I went through and I went through the economic arguments about mandates and I basically said, look, this is worse than the tax and this is worse than the subsidy, right? Because there's no world in which this is the optimal policy that you that you would do. The mandates you're saying. Right. Yeah. And so the and so the the point is, is that um, and so then basically the way that I concluded it is I said, okay, look. The textbook tells us, okay, you either do a tax or you do a subsidy. And the textbook tells us they're the same. What I've shown is that they're not the same. And then I've also shown that the mandate is not the same either. And mm-hmm. the mandate is, is not optimal. And so then I just concluded by saying, like, maybe they should try some subsidies. Okay, so to give you some, some background on where I'm coming from with this, like, yes, I could have made an argument about the tax system that I described as being fairly tyrannical. I could, I could have made that argument. But there's a couple of things here, and, and one of them is about this specific post, and then one of them will be about, you know, a bigger picture kind of issue. Okay. Is that the 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 whole point of our of our substack is um is to restrict what we write to just economic analysis. So in economics, um, you know, you can think of economics as asking two types of questions. It can ask positive questions or it can ask normative questions. Positive questions are like, what is? Like, what is, ha- like, why is this happening? What is happening? Um, uh, th- those kinds of questions, right? Normative is like, what should happen? What should you do? And so kind of the whole point of our, uh, of our substack is just to restrict everything that we write to just pure economic analysis and see what the economic analysis says. Because a lot of times the economic analysis by itself 
can get you the right answer without incorporating any of the political stuff and any of the other stuff. Now, one of the reasons that that we do that is, is about a bigger point, which, which I'll which I'll come back to later, which is that, you know, one of the reasons we do this is that so much of what comes out of academia is normative arguments, right? So much of what comes out of academia is this is what you should be doing, right? And so what we're trying to do with the with with the substack is basically try to explain things that are happening. And if that has any policy relevance, just talk about what economics has to say about the policy relevance rather than like what, um, you know, like what your political views would. And so I didn't like one of the reasons I didn't mention like, hey, by the way, like this tax system would be kind of tyrannical. One of the reasons I didn't mention that in the post is I didn't want it to distract from the argument because the point is, it's like I don't even have to invoke tyranny. Like this is bad just on pure economic grounds. Even if you're cool with tyranny, it's still bad. Right. Like it's still right. not going to it's still not going to achieve the, the outcome that you want. And so um, it, and so when I got the, you know, this response, I was kind of uh, confused by it because I'm like, mm, like I'm making the case here that like, you know, what they should have done is is subsidies. Right. That like give people the option to get the vaccine, but incentivize them. If you think that people should get it, then the, the correct solution is is to subsidize them, give them payments to go to go get it, but it's still their decision, right? And then we can get into that. Like, I think that there are ethical reasons, and I think that there are other reasons why you would want to subsidize instead of any of these other outcomes. But you don't actually need any of those other ethical or political arguments to make that case. I think you can make that case purely on the grounds of economics, and that was the point of the post. And so I, I don't see anything in there where I advocate tyranny at all. If, I mean, if you disagree, you should you should push back because I generally don't don't understand. No, he. he I think this is an example of you wrote something in a, uh, for lack of a better word, clinical manner, an economic manner, and and for a lot of people, I notice this all the time. The longer something is written, the more apt people are to get lost in it. And I'm guessing I'm gonna give him the benefit of the doubt here. That he took your he he took your statement, your premise, and simply couldn't take the politics out of it. He he couldn't look at it in a clinical, purely economic vacuum way. And instead he said, Oh, what you're saying is we should pay these kids or whatnot to go get vaccinated. We should pay everybody to go get vaccinated because w- w- without the vaccines, we're all doomed. And that was the I'm trying to I'm trying to give him the benefit of the doubt of of that time too, that time frame when I mean again. Well, and I think too in hindsight, I mean in hindsight like um, you know, um another thing that would be important to mention is like, well, like actually uh, because because all I was talking about was like what should what should you do? But that was what should you know like uh or or like what does economics say that are the policy um conclusions that you should arrive at given the premise that like that um you know uh that the vaccines actually you know prevent the spread of the disease now you know uh two years later it's not necessarily clear that 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 there was any benefit to be conveyed right there's not um you know there there doesn't seem to be very much evidence at all and i mean they've admitted this that you know later on that like it wasn't reducing the spread right like um i mean the what they've claimed is like that you know, people were likely to get less sick. They ne- they completely stopped with the, oh, it's stopping the spread. And so here's the deal. The deal is, is in hindsight, we know that it really didn't stop the spread. So if it really didn't stop the spread, you don't, you don't need to 
you don't need a tax. You don't need a subsidy. You don't need a mandate, right? Because the thing is, is like if it's only affecting you, well, now they don't need to incentivize you because you're not you're not affecting anybody else by making your own private decision. But that's something that in September 2021, I think it's unfair for me to have uh, to have known that like, hey, this isn't stopping the spread like these right. were, you know, months old at this at, at this point. And also we're we're in this world where, you know, everyone was like lying to us about everything, too. So it was very difficult. Well, to, I can to, remember uh, talking yeah. to you during that time. And I know that you were skeptical yeah. about it more, maybe more so than I was. Well, there's no question you were more so skeptical than I was because I was in that I was in that dilemma that year. I mean, you put it back in, you go back to those times. That's why people like me, I get questioned about this all the time. Why are you still mad? And my question is always, why are you not? Why are we not holding people accountable for the lies that were told to us? Because like I didn't, in hindsight, I didn't need the vaccine. I got the, this is the the crazy part for my story is I got the vaccine because I'm going to have to cover the sugar bowl. Ole Miss is going to the sugar bowl and the sugar bowl made it very clear that if you were going to stay at the media hotel and cover any of the in-person events and get access to the, to the sugar bowl itself, that you would be vaccinated. So what do I do? That's my job. Now, in hindsight, I'm mad at myself. I should have said, screw it. I'm not going to go. I'll, I'll watch it on TV. I'll take your video. I don't need that. I'd already had COVID. I was fine. I wasn't scared from COVID. I got it. Turns out that by taking it, I just put my health at risk. And ultimately, ultimately, they made everything virtual anyway because an outbreak happened in New Orleans in mm-hmm. December. I put in air quotes for those of you who aren't watching on ESPN 13. An outbreak happened, and we had to shut New Orleans down at the time because a new variant was running through. I mean, just another set of lies. I mean, I'm, I'm always, I'm always surprised as we as we have these conversations, whether no matter how specific we are about them, I'm always surprised there's not more lingering anger over everything that happened in the, that kind of two year time frame. I mean, you look and you, the suicide rate. Did exactly what people like me said it would do. It skyrocketed among youth. Uh, the learning curve, did, it was a disaster to education. An, an absolute abject disaster. And here's the crazy part. The liberals are the ones that defend it. And it's the underprivileged that suffered the most. The gap between the, the, the haves and the have-nots from an education standpoint widened in ways that you will, we will feel this in our country I'm just talking about America. We will feel this in our country for a generation, if not more. That's the kind of damage that was done. Why are people not angrier about it than they are? Well, and that's the other thing, too, that, like, I don't know. I I think the other thing that's kind of weird is, like, when you get criticism, I think one of the other things that's hard for you as a human is actually to realize that, like, these people don't know anything about you. So, like, you have information about yourself that you know that they don't know. And, um, and so, you know, like, first of all, like, I mean, we were recording podcasts during the pandemic saying like, Hey, schools should be open. I think we, we probably said schools should be open before anyone else said schools should be open in public. Like, I mean, we were talking about that very early on. Yes. Um, you were talking about how you were at, at Ole Miss at a time when they were allowing you to go all zoom. And you were one of the ones that was, was saying, Nope, we're going to, we're going to meet in person. Even though the, the whole mask mandate was ridiculous, you followed it. But you wanted, because you felt it was important for your students to have in-person learning. I remember you saying that very clearly on this podcast and probably other podcasts. That yeah. It was 
I say this podcast, MPW Digital, it was it was important to you that young people had that experience because I was going through it at the time with my oldest daughter was was at I guess that was her sophomore year at the University of Arkansas and her entire year was on Zoom and to say that it impacted her college education, her college experience is a, is a, is a gross understatement. It, it dramatically impacted it. Yeah, and I mean that was the thing is that um, I had very, like I guess what sort of surprised me about this I had very unpopular opinions about about COVID. I thought the schools should be open. I was teaching in person. Um, you know, I was in my office every day. You know, I you know my my life um, was you know. Uh, was, was, you know, a lot the same because I, I kept going to the office. I kept teaching. Um, this was really important. And I knew, and I, and also I knew right away that it was important because I could tell there are differences, uh, of between teaching on zoom and teaching in person that are evident to you. If you have taught for, you know, any period of time, it's evident to you like immediately how different it is. Like if you're in a room with people, like there, there's just a feel like I, it sounds stupid, but like if you, if you go into a classroom and you, and you do this all the time, there's a feeling in the classroom. Like, you know, when people are confused, you know, when people are lost, you know, when people mm-hmm. are losing attention, you know, mm-hmm. like and you can just feel it. Like you don't even have to look at people. Like I could stand with my back to the chalkboard and I could, and I, and I could feel it. And, uh, what I realized really quickly is when they, when they forced us all on zoom in March of 2020, I, I noticed it immediately is like, I don't like, I, I don't know how to read the room. Like, because everybody's just on a screen and I, and I can't feel it. And then what I started thinking is like, okay, if this is uncomfortable for me, it's got to be uncomfortable for these students. Yes. And so when they gave us the option to teach in person, like, you know, I jumped at the chance to teach in person. The other thing is, is like, um, you know, like I said, there, there's personal information that you, that, that you have that, that, that other people don't have. But like, I mean, none of my kids got vaccinated. I didn't make them get vaccinated. I was very opposed to that. Like, um, you know, if they try, if they would have tried to do it in the schools, if they would have tried to mandate it in the schools, like, you know, I, I would have been the front of the line being like, no, we're not doing this. The, um, you know, like the, and so, and so sometimes like that, but that complicates it. Right. Cause there's no way that this person sending me, sending you a tweet knows, <laughs> knows that. Right. No. But at the same time, but, but you know, but your instant reaction as a human is to be like, wait, wait a minute. What? Right. And, um, and so I don't know, I even went back and I read my piece and I just kind of described it. And I, I don't think that it sounds like I'm advocating anything tyrannical at all. And in, in, in fact, like the conclusion of the piece is basically saying like, Hey, give people their own choice and, you know, incentivize them. But like, give make it their choice because you don't have to take the payment. Like, just because you get, you know, just because a subsidy is offered doesn't mean that you have to take the subsidy, right? You know, I mean, you get a subsidy for driving an electric car. I didn't drive here in an electric car, so you know, the idea that the subsidy exists is still my choice. I do think the solar panels on the top of your car are incredible. <laughs> I, I, they're, they're amazing. Um, I love those. Um, no, and, and there's a tendency among people, and I, we all do it. Everybody does it to stereotype. And to lump everyone into a into a thing, and so you're you're in academia, and so a lot of people say, "Oh, he's just a typical academic," which is absurd. As I come from a family of academics, my father was the dean of education at what is now Louisiana Monroe, and he was the he taught at Louisiana Tech forever, and was head of freshman English at Ole Miss. He has a doctorate from the University of Alabama. I mean, he, my mother has a master's. I came from a very academic household and my parents certainly don't subscribe to the uh the the 
ideology that is associated with academia. We will get into some people who uh, who do in a moment, but uh, but not all academics uh, have the same political persuasion. Well, and it's not just political persuasion. I think there. Okay, there's there's a variety of things here. Um, so, uh, I was kind of confused by the, by the, by the tweet, but then I was kind of amused because he ended it by saying, watch him squirm like a typical academic or something like that. And, uh, I mean, first and foremost, like, uh, like I, I, I don't squirm and I'm not a typical academic. So, um, and so, you know, but, but actually this brings up a point which really has nothing to do with the commenter. It's actually just in general. And the general point is, is like, um, you know, you'll ask me sometimes like, oh, do you ever, do you, do you get criticism for the podcast? Does anybody, does anybody, does anybody say anything? Ironically, like the, the only criticism I ever get is from people who I think actually agree with me on stuff, right? Like, and, and who like are more aligned with me than, than a lot of other people They're But, but the thing is, is like, they're very anti-academic, Right. Like they're, they're like, oh, there, there must be like, um, it's like, maybe they agree with me on some things, but at the end of the day, like I'm still an academic or something. And so there, there must be something, you know, you know, there must be some shoe that's going to drop here pretty soon, uh, you know, where it sort of just reveal, uh, reveal that. But, but I want to, but, but I kind of want to address this because I want to address this in a variety of ways. So first of all, let's talk about the profession at large. If we talk about the profession at large, you know, I make fun of journalism all the time. And the thing I always say about journalism is, oh, it's just this one big club. Everybody goes to the same schools. You know, they all get these elite educations. They all have these same views. Uh, let me tell you something. That is also academia. This is a- academia is exactly the same. It's this big club. Everybody goes to the same schools. Everybody, you know, learns the same things. And um, and it is an, an echo chamber. It's, absolute, it's, it's absolutely an echo chamber. Um, but also it has this same, um, you know, there, there's the same sort of like uh, class basis here that we talk about with like uh, with journalists and things like that. It's like, yeah, these people are all going to elite uh, elite schools. But also, if you look at academics, one of the big problems with academics is tons and tons of academics. Their parents were also academics. Right. It's just like the family profession. It's just like, you know, generation after generation of uh, of academics all going to these same schools, all repeating the same stuff, all learning, the you know, the, the same stuff you know, uh, passing this down and it's this never ending thing, but like, it's the same fundamental problem that's going on in journalism. It's the same fundamental problem. And you see this too, because look at the synergy between journalists and like academia, academia, right? There's tons of synergy just in terms of what they think, but also in terms of the value of academia, right? Like if you talk, you know, if you read the, the media, if you watch the news, if you, you know, if you consume any media whatsoever, they tell everybody you got to go to college. Like yep. you got to go to college. College is most important. Like, you know, and, and the, the argument is like, oh, you don't go to college. Like you're a moron. Like this is, I mean, this is how they present things, right? Like there's nothing wrong with being a carpenter. You don't have to go to college to be a carpenter. Like being a carpenter is, is it, it, first of all, it's like actually like a cool profession, right? Like I know people who do this like kind of stuff in their spare time because oh, yeah. they enjoy it. Right. Yeah, sure. Okay. This is so, um, you know, but like these are noble jobs that people have done, you know, forever and according to the media, according to academics, right? Like these are things that like people just shouldn't do. And, and that's the other thing is that, okay, so there's a huge problem in the profession. The, the, the huge problem in the profession is the same fundamental problem that, that that's going on in, in journalism. But then <laughs> the other thing, but the other thing is that, 
But the, but the other thing too is, okay, I, I'm not a typical journalist or a, a typical journal. I'm not a journalist at all. I'm not a typical academic, right? I'm not a typical a- academic in, in any sort of way. Like my, my grandfather had an eighth grade education, an eighth grade education at 14 years old. He dropped out of school. He got a job putting roofs on houses. And at 18, uh, he quit that job and he joined the military. And when he came back, do you know what he did? He put roofs on houses again. And he did that for the rest of his life. He did that. He put roofs on houses until he could get to a point where he could actually start his own roofing company, right? It was a small little roofing company. He had like three employees, right? And, um, and he did that um, right up until the day he retired. He retired shortly thereafter. He got lung cancer and he died. So basically from his entire life, he was up on a roof, you know, every day. Okay. Eighth grade education. Now, I'm bringing this up not to be like, okay, you know, um, I, I'm bringing this up in part to be like, look, I, I, I don't come from, you know, this stereotypical academic family. But also, I'm bringing this up not because, like, I didn't grow up with hardship, okay? Uh, look, I, I, I have a PhD. I'm not only the only person in my family with a PhD. I'm the only person in my family who has a college degree, okay? But I'm not, I, I'm not bringing that up, like, as though I experienced some kind of hardship. Like, my parents work very, very hard. Um, like, I never wanted for anything. Yeah. I was not poor, Okay. Um, so I'm not, that, that's not what I'm trying to claim here, right? I'm not trying to make this a class-based argument. It, well, in a way, I'm not ma- making this an income-based argument. It is sort of related to class, but here's, here's my important point though, is my important point is, is that we live in a society. We live in a society that looked down on people like my grandfather. Like they looked down in eighth grade education, like, oh, you know, like, you know, like eighth grade education. Oh, like you just like put roofs on houses for your whole life. Like, you know, like they, they look down on this. Like this is not like, like this is not noble or this is not, or like he's not smart. Okay. I remember when my grandmother died. So, so my grandfather died when I was 12. When my grandmother died, I remember going through her house with my dad. My dad was showing me all the things that my grandfather had done to the house. So he showed me a picture of what the house looked like, like when they moved in. And then he showed me all the things that my grandfather had done to the house. And like he had added on like rooms, he had built a garage, um, like he had, he had done all of these things. Things that you have to be smart to do. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, this guy, this guy did so much construction work, right? Just like for himself and for, and just as like side jobs for other people. And like, this is all stuff that requires an incredible amount of skill. But like, the, I remember the coolest thing, which I never knew this until like my grandmother died. They had this room in their garage in this room in their garage. This is in Ohio? Yeah, yeah. Okay. So they had this room in their garage. The garage, not connected to the house. So like it's in the winter time, it's cold cold as you can imagine, yeah, right? right. But there is a little room in their garage off to the side. And in this little room, which as a kid, I never really understood why it was a room. Because basically it was like a tiny little room. You open it up and then there was just shelves in there. And my grandma would store food in there, Right. And I never really, and, and as a kid, I would be like, like, why is it like, like, why is this a room? Like you could have just put shelves up and put the stuff up. Well, because as a kid, I'm not thinking like, oh, actually in the wintertime, it gets really, really cold and all this stuff would freeze. But anyways, so I was well acquainted with this room. I've been in that room many times. My grandmother had sent me to get food out of there many times. So when I was going through there with my dad, my dad goes, yeah, I want to show you something really cool. And he said, and, and so he started like showing me like the walls and he was like, do you see like, like these walls, like your, your grandfather, like put up like special sort of insulation in these, in these walls. But then also he had rigged up a heat lamp in this room. And when the temperature got below a certain level, the heat lamp would kick on and keep that room warm enough so that none of that, so that none of that food would be wasted. Eighth grade education. This guy is smarter than most people that I know. Okay. Yeah, of course. And 
And but but this is why I bring this up is I bring this up because in our society, we have completely confused what it means to be intelligent with what it means to have a degree. Yes. We've completely confused what it means to be knowledgeable with being credentialed. Okay. And this is the fundamental problem is that the fundamental problem that we have in our in our academic system is that we have a bunch of credentialed midwits running around who mm-hmm. think that they're geniuses. Yep. And they think that they're geniuses because they have this credential. And they think that the credential conveys some authority on them. And then they want to run out and then they want to talk about all of this stuff. And so when I get the criticisms of like, oh, yeah, like typical academic, like my response is always like, no, like I am like, you know, I'm trying to push back against the, like the typical academic. I'm trying to push back against all of this stuff because these are huge, huge problems. And you see that they're huge, huge problems. We see it. It's popping up in the media all the time now. There's all these stories about what's going on on college campuses, and it's an absolute disaster. And it's not an accident. It's not an accident. It's not a temporary thing. This is not something that like we can just go, oh, look at you know crazy college campuses. No, for sure. This is not just like, oh, hey, crazy college campuses. People have always said crazy things on college campuses. That's not the problem anymore. The problem is not that just that, you know, there are people who say crazy things. The problem is that this has taken over. That they that that these institutions have been completely captured um, by these people, um, you know, and they it cannot be allowed to be like that. Like something has to change. And so when people tell me that I am like the typical academic, like I kind of laugh at that because first of all, like you know, to to get back to to the the first point that I made, the whole reason we started that Substack was to focus a substack entirely on economics because what we noticed is that in economics, we were also starting to see some of this stuff where all this ideology and stuff creeps in. And so what we wanted to do is say, no, 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 we're going to write this substack and all of our posts are going to be just purely about economics. So what does economics have to say about this? And then, and so the idea was, is like you're sort of taking the politics and the ideology out of it and just letting economics kind of guide you on, on what you want to do. The other thing is like, hell, the reason I'm doing this podcast, right, is because I'm not a typical academic. Like, I remember when you asked me, like, if I wanted to do this, I had to think about it. I had to think about it because this is not like, um, you know, uh, I, look, I lack uh, a certain sense of like self-preservation instincts. Okay. So I'm not, I'm, I'm not going to deny that. Okay. But so my brother tells me <laughs> yes. all the time, he's like, you, you would get, he goes, you wouldn't make it in the corporate yeah. world. And I'm like, well, I mean, I kind of work corporate a little bit. I mean, Yahoo owns rivals and I contract with rivals and I guess they could come say, Hey, you're, you're crazy to think some of the things that you think. And so we're going to disassociate ourselves from you. And my response would be, okay, um, I'll do something else. But he's like, you know, in the corporate world, if you said any of the things that you say, and I'm like, like, like what, give me an example, you know, and of course there's nothing, you know, it's just, if you don't, I mean, we're, we're in bizarro world right now, in my in my opinion, and we're going to get into some of the things like I, that for people that obviously aren't involved in our text chain. We we'll just sort of send each other crazy stuff back and forth, and usually it's me going, "Can you believe this?" And then you'll send me like this long paragraph that explains it, and I'm like, "Yeah, we'll talk about it," um, because I'm I'm just I'm floored by some of the things that I see and and, and read and. I'm not a typical journalist either, obviously. I, 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 and I get why people don't like journalism. I 100% agree. I, I don't blame you all for hating all of us. I don't. I, you should, in fact. You, you shouldn't trust us. We're nuts. Um, 
the field's gone crazy and it's but it's not it's not all journalists it's the ones that are shaping the most of opinion and you're right they all come from the same places they run in the same little circles um and 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 they're they're aligned with a lot of the academia types you know the harvards and the mits and all those people kind of run together that's that's who they go to for comment on things hey you know what's going on in the middle east let's go talk to the people at harvard at yale at cornell at dartmouth and they some public policy person and they take that and oh this is what they said they have no relate they they can't relate at all to the life that your grandfather lived they can't relate at all to the life of a man who didn't even have a high school education who figured out a way to make a living and to be married and to raise his children and to have I'm going to guess up until the lung cancer, probably a fairly happy existence, um, a fulfilling existence. Um, never been anywhere where people didn't need a roof. Never been anywhere where there, there weren't people didn't need a roof. It's like plumbing, you know? You ever been anywhere where they don't, I mean, you want plumbing, you know? You, you just generally do. I mean, there's a, one of the, the, a girl that I went to high school with in Louisiana, her dad was a plumber. And everybody in town knew Ronnie Farmer. Because if you had a problem with plumbing, because when you have a problem with plumbing, you want that fixed pretty quick. You know what I mean? I mean, that's not, hey, got this toilet issue. Yeah, any chance you can be here in the next couple of weeks? No, it's any chance you can be here in the next couple of minutes, right? <laughs> yeah. And Ronnie Farmer was the guy that would show up. And hey, when, you know, if it happens at nine o'clock at night and he charges you a time and a half, is what it is, write the check. I mean, I think Kim and her siblings grew up I'm not going to say they were rich, but they didn't grow up wanting for anything. And, and, you know, and no one looked down on them either. I mean, it was like, yeah, I mean, he's a plumber. I mean, but we do have this deal now, like you were talking about, where we kind of look down on, on people and you have people that don't want to work and, and we, it, it's, I'm not, I'm not doing blue collar work or whatever the word would be. It, it It's, I think it's dangerous to society. I think where we're headed is a place that's not it's not productive, that's not good. No, it well, and also I think that you actually can identify the divisions that we see in society by 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 this observation. You know, like a lot of academics and journalists and people like that, you know, like they just they they prioritize like, oh, you got to have a college education, you got to have a college degree no matter what, you got to go to college, you got to, you know, that sort of thing. And they see non-college educated people or people doing jobs that don't require a college education they see those people as low status but you know what's funny like go around and talk to plumbers go talk to carpenters yeah go talk to electricians yeah go go talk to them and ask them if they what status they think journalists have go ask them what status they think academics have low status and so you have these two groups of people who both see each other as low status right (laughs) okay and so um, but that perfectly epitomizes the problems that we have going on right now is that um, these are the fundamental disagreements uh, that are going on because there are these certain people who see themselves as sort of like the elite, right, as the people who should be running things. And for the most part, they are running things and they're doing a terrible job. And so I'm on the side of the plumbers here. I'm on the side of the carpenters. Like I see that what's going on. And I see that like, no, 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 like there is, um, it, it, that the people who are claiming this elite status, these people who are claiming 
to, to have, you know, this, this authority to, to, to make these decisions, to do these things. You know, the, these people who think that they're the ones who should be making decisions, they're making terrible decisions. They're doing a terrible job and that has to stop. And so if you, you know, and so like, like you said, you said, you know, I don't blame people who, who don't like journalists. Well, I don't blame people who don't like academics. Right. But like, I think, but, but at the same time, that's one reason why when, you know, uh, like the, the only kind of criticism I ever get is like, oh, like, uh, you know, just an academic right And I'm just kind of like, no, like that's the whole point. Like I agree with you about academia, right? Like I am doing my best to try to illuminate these things and to bring this uh, message to other people and to make them aware of the problem because I know that it needs to be fixed and I know that like something has to be done and like I don't know what I can do but like as chair I have tried to do a lot of things to do outreach to try to present you know to uh, the public especially like the people of Mississippi like that like no actually like there are people who are doing practical things here who actually teach valuable skills to students who get students jobs and who are normal and who are not like saying crazy things. I mean, I go around and I talk to business groups. I go on like super talk. Like I do this podcast. I do all of these things. And, you know, um, and I'm, and I'm deliberately doing these things because I'm trying to, you know, I, I'm trying to be that alternative, um, you know, voice. If they're going to ask somebody, you know, at a university to say something like, I want to be that alternative voice. I want to show that there are these people who, here who are actually doing practical things, getting students jobs, you know, like who are, don't have crazy opinions, who, who aren't trying to like, you know, um, invoke radical change on like every part of your daily life on, on a daily basis. Yeah. I'm always surprised that you don't get more pushback with people saying, man, I just can't believe you, you say those things because those are not popular things to say on a lot of college campuses. Well, that's, the, that's the funny thing is that when I, when I was considering whether to even, you know, start doing this on a regular basis, I, I, you know, that was the one thing that I thought about was kind of like, well, um, you know, should I do this? Because like, I'm probably going to get met with a lot of backlash because my opinions are not popular opinions on college campuses. And I spend a lot of my time on a college campus. And so, you know, should, should I do this? But one of the reasons that, you know, I decided to do this is, you know, it gets back to your point about your brother is that there are a lot of things that a lot of people believe that they don't think that they can say out loud. Right. And we're in, we're at a point where people are afraid to speak up. There are people who are afraid to just say true things yes. um, out loud because of the backlash that they can get, because that's not, that that's not part of the, the, the narrative. Some headlines, the Atlantic. I don't, I did not read the story. Just read the headline. Inflation is your fault. If people are so mad about high prices, why do they keep buying so many expensive things by Annie Lowry? We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. 
Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another, there is no way to live a life without regret. The panic over transgender children is driven by the fear that they'll regret transitioning. But freedom to make mistakes is core to being human. I don't know which one to start with. I'm more upset about Lydia Polgreen's story about there's no way to live a life without regret. You know, there's a difference there's a difference between a 12-year-old saying, you know, I think I'm going to go out and lay in the sun all day long, and I'm not wearing sunscreen. You're going to regret that, okay? going to get burned. You're going to hurt. You're going to come home. Mom's going to put that green stuff all over you. You're going to be in tears. You're going to learn a lesson. But you know what? You're going to be okay. It's going to be all right. That's, you can regret it but it's going to be okay. Now, same 12-year-old. You know, I'm a little confused right now. I think I'd like to get my breasts cut off or my penis and testicles cut off. Doing that and then seven years later going, nope, turns out that was a phase. That's a little different type of regret, I would I would say to Lydia. So I, I, I would say that the panic over trans, transgender children is not driven, when she says it's it's driven by the fear that they'll regret transitioning, yes, that's correct. But freedom to make mistakes is core to being human does not apply to something as dramatic as allowing your child to be transitioned. That's just me. And I don't think that's all that, I don't think that's an extreme view on my part. No, but I also, I want to make a couple points here. So one... conservatives people on the right they need to stop um like engaging in these logical arguments because what they do on the left is they frame they create a framing yep they create a framing and the framing is look we all make mistakes this is just a mistake and so you know that happens and that's just part of you know um you know that's just part of life and what i see a lot of conservatives do is they just try to substitute this so what they try to do is they'll say like, oh, like, um, you know, I, I should give my 12 year old cocaine and then my, you know, my 12 year old does cocaine. And then I say, oh, see, that was a, that was a mistake. So that's right. I should do that. No, don't engage in this whatsoever. There should be no talk about like the logical argument. Do not accept the framing. Do not accept the framing. Okay. When we are talking about young children, there is no excuse to be doing this to young children. There, there's no excuse. It's evil. No, yeah, it, it is evil. And you just need to say, no, it's it's evil to do this to a child. Period. It is. Because here's the thing. 
it's not the child's mistake. It's your mistake. Right. You're the one who's doing this. Right. So this that is a decision that's simply too big for a 12 or an 11 or a 10 year old person to make. Exactly. That is too big of a decision. They, they literally we can medically prove this. They, they are not capable. And this is no knock on young people, by the way. They're just not capable at that age of making that decision. If you sit down with a 10 year old, you have a different conversation than you do if you sit down with a 40 year old. And the problem is, is that once you accept the framing, now you're just negotiating terms because if once you accept the framing of, oh, this is just a mistake and people are allowed to make mistakes. And then you start offering different examples of like, what is a mistake and what's not a mistake. You've already lost the argument because now all you're just debating is where do you draw the line? Like, where is the line drawn? And so, and so people get sucked into these things and the, and the proper answer is to just say, no, no, right. That that's the proper answer. Don't engage in these debates because you know, I, I say this lots of times, the tactic on the left is create a framing Get the other side to accept your framing. Once they accept your framing, it's just a matter of time before you win. But also, they try to construct, you know, some sort of like logical argument, or they try to appeal to some kind of value or virtue or something that 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 you have. But they don't share the same values as you. They don't. They don't believe in those virtues. They're not interested in that. All they're interested in is the outcome. They're just trying to achieve their stated outcome. And they will do what they have to do to achieve their stated outcome. We're not debating about principles. We're not just having a civilized disagreement about, you know, you know, uh, about these issues. Everything that they are doing is designed to just get the result that they want. And too many people on the right just accept the framing, fall into that trap and 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 just assume that these people are interested in having, you know, just like a rational debate where we can just, I'll give you my side, you give your your side, and then we'll just come to an agreement. That's not what they're after. What they're after is their outcome. They want their outcome, and they're going to do whatever, me, and, and they're going to try to do whatever they can to achieve that outcome. And then once you accept the framing, once you get into this debate, once you start engaging in this, it's just a series of compromises until you end up in their outcome. It's well put. You're right. I mean, I fall into that trap all the time. I, I, I watch Riley Gaines, who's been on this podcast, or MPW. She's battling this out with people who just are making her out to be evil. And all she's ever talked about is athletic competition. That's it. That's it. And I watched someone debating her the other day saying, w- w- women just have to learn how to lose gracefully. It's like, Seriously? Women fought for years and won. And you're just giving the victory away. Why? All in the name of, of some form of political correctness or or no. I mean, look, Carson played soccer last night. He plays on the boys' team and they play after the girls' team. And the girls' team, damn it, gave up a goal in the final minute that forced overtime. So two ten extra 10-minute periods. Uh, Oxford won. Congratulations to the Chargers. Three to two. Big, big district win for them. And then the boys played. This isn't a better or worse. But if you watch a girls' soccer game and then you watch a boys' soccer game, they don't even look like the same game. One is slower. It's a little more technical. 
I'm not saying it's worse. Notice this. There's no one saying worse. And the parents cheer for the girls just as hard as the parents of the boys cheer for the boys. It, it's, not a, it's not a better or worse, but it's different. And what I told Laura, my wife, I said, you know, you could have taken last night, taken those two teams, DeSoto County and DeSoto Central and Oxford, and taken the 11 best girl players against the 11 worst boy players from the two teams combined. And the boys would have destroyed them. Now, does that mean the boys are superior? No, of course not. But it means they're different. They're, there's, there's some understood biology that, that goes there. I, I don't know why. These are basic things. When, when, what I find maddening is when this becomes a debate. Right? Well, yes, biological males should be allowed to compete against biological females. Why? You know inherently what that, what that results in. It's been documented. And when you see the documentation, why can't you say, oh, no, you know what? You're right. They can't. Because it's a super easy. People say, well, how do you fix it? Oh, super easy. If you're born male, you can only compete in male sports. If you're born female, you compete in female sports. It's not saying one's better, one's worse. Just is what it is. Delineation. Boys shouldn't be in the Girl Scouts. Girls shouldn't be in the Boy Scouts. Pretty simple stuff. You don't combine them and then make an 11-year-old girl bunk with a biological male who identifies as a female. You, that's, not, that's not right. Anybody can see that and know that's not right. Well, and yet she gets labeled, Riley does, who's a, an accomplished athlete. I mean, she's she at the top. She's she owns American records. You know how hard it is to own an American record in sports, in anything. Josh, just mm-hmm. pick something. How hard you have to work to get to that place. The sacrifices you have to make. The talent you have to have. The discipline you have to have to refine that talent. The 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 fortitude that you must have to compete at the highest level against other people who are competing as hard as you are to make the milliseconds of differences to be the difference between first and fourth, second and seventh, to get to that place. And you want to minimize that accomplishment by letting someone who just identifies as a female, who's six foot five, 225 pounds, who all just look at the difference. We don't, that's insanity. Well, it's just basic. I don't know if people who make these arguments make them in good faith or not. But even if they are making them in good faith, like the issue is like they don't understand like overlapping distributions, right? Like the thing is, is that um, if you look at like men and women, yes, I can go find a a woman who's more athletic than a given man. Sure. I can do that. I can put them in a competition together where the woman will win. Yes. Okay. But that is a different question. Um, when we're talking about competitive sports, because when we're talking about competitive sports, what we're talking about is we're talking about people who are in the tails of the distribution. Right. We're not. And, and first of all, overlapping distributions, there's going to be a difference in the average to begin with. So the, 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 the fact that you can find somebody in the lower distribution that can beat somebody in the higher distribution. Is for, ex- for example, right. could I go find 11 boys out there? Who would lose to the eleven best girls from Oxford and, and DeSoto? Yes, yes one thousand yeah. percent. I would find boys who don't play sports. 
I would find boys who know nothing about soccer. I would find boys who are for, sort of frail or whatnot, and I could put them out there and the girls would beat them. But that's different than, okay, but against boys who do play soccer, who do practice soccer, who do train for soccer, I'm not going, I'm going to have a hard time doing it. Yeah. And I mean, it's just, it's, look, it's basic. Okay. Um, when, when I was in high school, there was a quarterback in our league. Um, you might, you might've heard of him. Uh, his name was Ben Roethlisberger. I've heard of, I've heard of Ben. I've I've actually met Ben. Yes. Um, if you let me, if you if you let me have a time machine and you just took me back to like the day I was born and I had been given the mandate, you left like a little note in my room that said, <laughs> work out every day. Football is life. Be a quarterback. Be a quarterback. Yeah. Okay. And I worked eight hours a day, every day from the time I could walk to being, to, to be a quarterback. Got all the training. To, uh, yeah. Quarterback specialist, everything. Dietitians. He still would have been better than me. Yes. He still would have been better than me. A lot better. <laughs> yes. And it wouldn't even have been close. <laughs> no. It wouldn't even have been close. You would have been better than other guys that look like you. Yes. That's it. And so <laughs> the thing is, is that, okay, I, no, no matter what I did, I, I never would have been, I, I never would have been better it to than the NFL. Me. No. And so the, the, so the thing is, is that we can easily admit those things. Yeah. Right? Like we can easily admit those things. But then when it comes to this topic, we pretend like that doesn't apply. It doesn't apply within gender. It doesn't apply across gender. But why? Well, I mean, part of the reason, well, th- there's two reasons for this. Part of it is, is there's this, um, is that um, there's this view on, on the left that you cannot compromise whatsoever, right? And so you cannot give any ground whatsoever. But then also because the left controls the levers of power, if you are on the left or even if you're on the right, you do not want to um, you do not want to contradict the official line because you know that there's a punishment that comes with contradicting the official line. Mm-hmm. If you come out and you say that, then that's automatically going to that that's automatically going to do something to you. Like there is something that you will not be able to do anymore. Or there is some opportunity that won't be available to you that might have been available to you because you're the person who said this thing that mm-hmm. nobody is allowed to say. Okay. And so what happens is is that they um, they feel so strongly right about um, about this issue that like there has to be the hardest possible line. You can't concede any ground. You have to have the you have to have this radical position and you stick to that radical position and you don't cede any ground. There's no giving ground. There's no compromise. This is this is what we believe that's that's you know that that's what happens with the with these people but then because they're like this wouldn't matter if like their political side was not like the dominant political power if they were not the dominant political power people would joke about this and they would laugh about this in public mm-hmm. right like they would say like okay clearly like this is not you know like this is not true but you're not allowed to say it you're not allowed to say it. And you see this all the time because there are people that you know in real life who know that this is not true. They know that, um, you know, uh, if you um, if you just take, you know, somebody who's like an average male swimmer, that he might be able, that, that he's going to be able to beat the vast majority of all the female swimmers. And you and you, you know that. And so. But but they don't say it. 
And they don't say it because they, they don't want to deal with the repercussions. And they know that the people who hold the positions of power will punish them for it. They'll withhold opportunities or, you know, there's the cancel culture or, or what have you. All right. We're not going to get to everything I wanted to get to today because I, I talked too long. But I want to get to this. We've beaten up on journalists enough. Let's, let's get back to academia and beat up on, <laughs> on you guys for a while. This is, but this is more serious than any. This is serious. Because these are like the prestigious institutions. If you were to say to someone, hey, name me the 10 most prestigious academic institutions in America. Almost certainly Harvard, MIT, and Penn would make the list. I mean, along with Stanford and you know Dartmouth and ULM and Northwestern and some of those schools, right? <clears throat> they would. That's what would make it. The presidents of Harvard, MIT, and Penn, Josh, were all asked the following questions under oath yesterday at a congressional he- hearing on anti-Semitism. Does calling for the genocide of Jews violate Harvard's, MIT's, Penn's code of conduct or rules regarding bullying or harassment? Does calling for the genocide of Jews, for those that don't know, genocide means wiping them all out, like killing them, exterminating, violate your university's code of conduct or rules regarding bullying or harassment? Now, to me, that's a real simple answer. But the answers that they gave were not that. And then Representative Elise Stefanik, I don't know where she's from. I'll find it real quick. Well, it doesn't matter. Because it really doesn't matter. She's a congresswoman, uh, New Hampshire, New York. A New York congresswoman, uh, GOP. Elise Stefanik, she, uh, she identifies as Sam's mom, congresswoman, House GOP, conference chair, new generation of leadership, real results, electing GOP women, EPAC. That's her ex-profile. She was so shocked with the answers that she asked each of them the same question over and over and over again. And they gave the same answers over and over and over. In short, it depends on the context, they said. Whether the speech turns into conduct, they said meaning that is actually killing Jews. This is, this is mind-numbing to me that leaders of, of these institutions can't say, no, absolutely that violates our code. You couldn't, you couldn't stand up on the campus at Harvard and call for the extermination of all Hispanics. Don't, don't get me wrong. I'm not advocating for that, for the record. Or the extermination of all women, black people, um, Asians. Probably could call for the extermination of white people. That probably would pass these days. Um, I don't think you could call for the extermination of all Labrador retrievers at Harvard and it not be flagged. Honest God, I don't think you could say, you know what I think we should do? We should exterminate all border collies. I'm not sure you could call for the extermination of all goldfish and it wouldn't get pushback. And for the record, I I don't think we should exterminate all the goldfish either. There are a lot of little kids that enjoy their pet goldfish. This This is basic stuff. This is stuff that 30 years ago we wouldn't have even blinked an eye at. And it, it's what makes me wonder, 
from a societal standpoint. From a societal standpoint. These are the people that are teaching the, quote, best and brightest. What are we going to produce if, no, we can't all accept it. No, no, no. We, you, you, you can't. You can't. Don't give me First Amendment. We're not, I'm not going to persecute you and put you in prison, but you can't say that on our campus. You can't come say that on our campus and be welcomed. You can't call for the extermination of an entire group of people, in this case, Jewish people. I think this ties together a lot of the things that, we, that, that we've talked about. So let's start here. First of all, their defenses to, to this question were on sort of like free speech grounds. You know, it was kind of like, well, you know, people are allowed to say things. You know, there, there has to be a credible threat involved for it to violate the policy and, and, and that sort of thing. Um, but here's where they get themselves into trouble. They don't use that standard for anything else. Like they don't use that standard for anything else. They are not in favor of freedom of speech. They don't issue statements saying, hey, we respect viewpoint diversity and, you know, people are allowed to express whatever opinions that they have as long as it's not bringing harm to people or something like that. They, they don't do they, they don't they don't do things like that. Like what they do is like when it benefits them, they talk about, well, this is just freedom of speech. This is just, um, you know, th- th- uh, th- this is just what. Um, you know, happens on college campuses, right? It's just free speech and free expression, and that's what we value in society, right? That that's one of our our big American values is is freedom of speech and freedom of expression. And you could and you could hear that, and you could believe that, and if they did this in any other context, but they don't do that in any other context. They right. have entire like all of these policies that they have in place are specifically di- designed to limit speech. To limit specific kinds of speech, um, you know, to to get back to our our last topic, I, I imagine that if you misgendered someone, that would violate their code of conduct. Almost certainly, well, at one of those institutions, I want to say it was Harvard. They they issued a warning, I think, a trigger warning about Riley Gaines making an appearance. I think she was ultimately fined, or they made her pay for her own security or whatnot. So yeah, that's, there's no question about that. But but I go back to why. Well, the reason for why is that academia is uh, sort of the, the the epitome of this. If you want to rise, you've got to parrot the lines. Like it doesn't matter whether the like I have no idea whether these that's people the, that's believe the, that's the corporate argument. Yeah, and I don't I don't know whether any of these people believe what they're saying, but I know that they know that this is what they have to say. Because of the constituencies, they they have um, their students and their radical faculty members expect them to uh, not push back on this. And so that's what they do. And they do that um, because they want to maintain their position. They want to be in those leadership positions. They know what they have to say to get those positions. They know what they have to say to stay in those positions. And so once, you know, the, it, it, once there's some standard thing that, that, people are going to say they have to go along with that because if they don't go along with that, then that removes opportunities for them. Their opportunities are gone. They have to immediately uh, go do something else. And so they're going to say what they have to say. And this is how all of this stuff sort of, um, you know, perpetuates is that, you know, once, once a side that is saying things, um, 
that is saying a particular thing, regardless of what that particular thing is, once that side gains political power and once they control the institutions, everybody at those institutions is going to say the line. They're going to say the line because that's the only way that you move up. That's the only way that you don't rock the boat. That's the only way that you don't get fired. That's the only way that you get a promotion. That's the only way that you become the president. That's the only way that, you know, yep. that's, that's how these, that, that's how these things function. And so they're going to go up there and they're going to shamelessly sit there and they're going to smile smugly at the, at the Congresswoman while she asks them these questions and they can't even give her, a, and it's not even that they don't give the correct answer. They don't even really give an answer. Right. They weasel around and then, and they just say like, well, you know, they're not really threatening anyone. I don't know. Like, I think when you say let's kill this entire group of people, that is a threat to that group of people. Beyond a shadow of a doubt. Like, that's, you know, so. The, I mean, can you imagine? Can you, I mean, can you just, I don't even want to say it because it's, it's an absurd thing. If someone were to say we, we should exterminate all Hispanic people, all Asian people, can you imagine? I mean, the right, rightfully, the indignate, the the, the the horror of that. I yeah. mean, there would be. Can't even imagine. I, I, you can't fathom it. Could be because it, it it's so outrageous. But this issue also points to the thing. This issue also points to. Like, you know, I always cite ideology and I always point out that what I mean by ideology is like if you describe your ideology, it sounds like a coherent set of beliefs, but it's not consistent with empirical evidence or or like uh, or historical experience. Um, and I think that this kind of epitomizes it because you, you saw all these people who come out and they're like, um, you know, uh, like queers for Palestine and stuff like that. Right. And like, they think they're on the same side, like, because they see everything as just like the oppressed versus the oppressor. And they think like, we're the oppressed group. They're the oppressed group. We're allies. And this just shows a complete and utter lack of understanding of the world. They, they don't they, just basic empirical observation. Like they don't, they don't understand this. Like they, but, but this is how it perpetuates is that this is, you know, they're, there is an accepted view uh, among these people who hold power at these institutions and that accepted view among the people who hold power becomes the only view that's acceptable because to deviate from that means punishment. But that kind of gets me back to one of the things that we talked about earlier is, is that it only brings punishment if people are afraid to speak up. Like, you know, I think I've mentioned this before, but there is, uh, you know, th there's this phenomenon um, when you go back and you look at like revolutions, mm -hmm. there's this phenomenon where before the revolution, the way that the media covers the revolution is sort of like, oh, it's this ragtag group of people. They're no threat. They're not, you know, they're, you know, they're not, they're not going to achieve anything. But then after the revolution is successful, the story is, well, of course, this is inevitable. Like everybody hated the old regime. Right. Yeah. And, and so what happens is, is that you have to have these, um, you, you have to have people speak freely because the reason that these revolutionaries don't look like a, a threat in that, in that context is they don't look like a threat because they seem like no one believes this, but actually a lot of people are sympathetic. They just are afraid to say it because they think that they're not allowed to say it. So they, they, they falsify their preferences. They act like they believe things that they don't believe because that's the best way to, to, to continue moving forward. You just go along to get along and you keep moving forward. But at a certain point, like you have to push back on people who are saying things um, and you have to and, and you have to 
and you have to speak out. And I think that like in these sort of scenarios, like you see the problem here is the problem is, is that these groups have run through the institutions, they control everything and everybody's afraid to, you know, speak up and, and say anything that contradicts the official doctrine. All those lines, we'll finish here because I'm going to see whether you agree with this because I think there is a pushback coming. I think you can sense it. You can see it. People are more and more starting to realize that maybe maybe it's gone too far. It's, it's impacting too many people. Jason Whitlock, someone who I like, um, he's a sports writer, used to be a sports writer, um, was, was a really good one. He's African-American. Uh, he's very religious, very spiritual, Christian. Uh, does not kind of toe mainstream viewpoints and has him alienated. He's vilified often. But he, 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 he comments on the thing we were just talking about, the tweet about Elise Stefanik questioning the presidents of Harvard, MIT, and Penn. He says, I agree with Representative Elise Stefanik here. New sentence. Here's where I struggle. We exist in a society culture where mainstream music celebrates the killing and degradation of black people, and virtually everyone thinks it's normal, referring to the music. This is the slippery slope we've allowed to take root. The hearts and minds of young people have been poisoned. I'm not arguing whataboutism. I agree with Rep- Representative Stefanik. These academic leaders are morally bankrupt. I'm arguing they didn't go bankrupt overnight. It was a long process. They're a reflection of a morally bankrupt mainstream culture we've allowed to exist. I realize that is a lot to throw at you and say as we wrap up. <laughs> but that I kind of agree with Jason here. That this didn't happen overnight. I don't think this happened just since COVID. I don't think this even happened just since Trump. Although those are are clear lines of, you know, those are are are, are data points certainly that that you can see things got more extreme or whatnot. But this goes back further, and and I I do as you and I've talked about this a lot because I I know you see most of your life I think as a father. I see most of mine as a father. It's my primary role. It's the role that I care the most about. That you know, the one I want to be most successful at, and I see. I see young people and I see the messaging that's out there that's directed at young people and I find it alarming because it's very mainstream and that's what they hear. Let's not kid ourselves. They walk around with these phones all day long. I'm, I'm not, they just do. And so they're on TikTok and they're on whatever other Snapchat and others. They're, their whole lives are social media. It might be a little extreme, but it's not much. And that's the messaging that's at them all the time. It's a, it, it, it's, it's pointed. I think it's intentional. I, I don't think it's accidental. I don't think it's, I don't think it's anecdotal. I think it's intentional. I think it, there is, there is an intentional effort on the part of someone, some entity to take away family values, to take away to to take away their sense of right and wrong 
of good and evil, I think there's a lot that happens there. And when the when the presidents of those major universities can't just state the obvious, which is, look, you you just can't we we we, we can't allow anyone to stand up on our campus and talk about the extermination of, of the Jewish people. I just think there's a lot there, Josh. I do. I, I just, I, I think, I think there is, as he says, there is a moral bankruptcy that is happening, but I think those withdrawals are being done intentionally with the design to devastate society. And if you want to devastate a society, where do you start? Young people. I've kind of talked about this before, but I think like, first of all, he's right. Like a lot of this stuff didn't begin yesterday. It began, you know, it began decades ago and it began decades ago, but you know, let's think about like how, um, I I mean, let's think about how these, how these systems like worked. You, you basically had in like the 1960s, you had like left-wing terrorists get academic jobs afterwards, right? Like they would, you know, um, what does this teach you? It teaches you that like, you know, you're not going to be punished for, uh, for these kinds of things. But why is that the case? Why is that the case? Well, it's because, um, this long march through the institutions, it's designed to destruct, to destruct things. They're trying, I mean, they're deliberately trying to destroy things. If you want to change things, the only way that you can change things is you have to tear down the things that prevent you from changing things. So they go through and they go to the institutions, they go to the family, they go to the universities, they go through the government and the bureaucracies, and they march through these things. And they're marching through these things, uh, you know, for the purpose of destruction so that they can take so that they can replace these things with the, with what they want. And that's the only way that they can actually achieve their power. I mean, we talked about the statues last week. That's why they want to tear down the statues. You tear down all of the icons of the previous regime so that you can put up the icons of the new regime. Yeah. That that's exactly what what happens. You know, going through and tearing down these institutions. You go through and you tear down these institutions and you undermine things. Um and you know, and you hear this all the time. You you hear this on the left all the time where they talk about like um you know, uh they they speak openly about like um how your kids when they go to the public schools, they're our kids. No. No, they're not our kids. Um you know, uh, my kids are my kids. They're not our kids. Right? But, they, but these are the arguments that they make mm-hmm. because they're trying to erode the family. They're trying to erode these institutions. They're trying to destroy the things that hold society together so that they can emerge with their uh, – for what they believe is their new, better version of society. And that's the only way that you can do it. You have to start with destruction and then build your way back up. And that's exactly what they've been doing. They've been marching through the institutions – and they've been, you know, uh, you know, they, they've been uh, teaching these crazy theories. They've been professing this ideology. Right. And um, and and so now you see this synergy that exists in academia with the media and all of these other things. And so, you know, it's no surprise, like, you know, it's permeated everything. And so somebody has to stand up and say enough. And you brought up Donald Trump like, no, it didn't. It didn't. Start with Donald Trump. What Donald Trump did is Donald Trump revealed to us what was going on because he heightened the contradictions and he got people to reveal their type. And once they revealed their type, this stuff wasn't hidden anymore. It was all out in the open. Yeah. 
I mean, we're, we're approaching. It's, we're in the 12th month of the year. 2024 is right around the corner. Like Literally, we've been doing this for a while now. We keep saying that. No, it's, it's here. I, I just, I am so braced. And I do sports for a living, right? There's going to be a lot of talk about this new 2024 season and new 12-team playoff and Texas and Oklahoma and USC and UCLA and Oregon and Washington going here and the new Big 12. And, and yeah, and I get all that. And it's cool, and I'm going to talk about it and write about it and all that stuff. But in the back of my mind, I am just keep thinking, this is, we're about to have the most vitriolic, crazy year in our lifetime. I, I mean, I really believe that's where we're headed. The polling data that's out there today is so anti-Biden. As of this moment, the Democrats don't appear to have a plan to go anywhere other than Biden. It appears that Trump's going to win the Republican nomination. I don't, I don't see a path where he doesn't. More and more legal people saying that these trials aren't going to come to fruition with the po- the possible, the one in New York with the 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 uh, porn star Stormy Daniels. That that possibly could, but that's not a criminal trial or what? It's a civil. I think civil. Um, the one in Atlanta probably won't actually get to court. The one in D.C. probably won't get to court. It's, we're, we're, you have Biden telling Democratic donors that, yeah, I probably wouldn't run if he were out, but he can't win. We, we can't let him win. I'm not accusing that being anything sinister, but you hear that and you have no matter what happens. I was listening to something yesterday. I promise I'm closing. I was listening to something yesterday in a podcast and the host said, yeah, a year from right now, the election will be over. And then he caught himself and he said, well, I mean, the election itself will be over, but there's no telling what the fallout we'll be dealing with will be, whether the, because whoever loses is going to dispute the election. That is an inevitability. If Joe Biden is declared reelected, on November, the whatever that is, in 11 months. The Republicans will say that the election was stolen. And if somehow Donald Trump is is declared the 45th president, I guess that right, 45th, 46th, whatever the number would be, at least track. If, if he's declared that, the, the, the Democrats will, will absolutely accuse something. We're going to be more divided than ever before in 11 months. And we're pretty damn divided right now. My attitude on this is like, actually, I think this election is, is, and the sort of expectation for what the election is going to be, I actually think it's kind of important because I think that this is the only way that people can get the message that they need to get. And that is that no one is coming to save you. I think people see all this crazy stuff and they think that like an election will solve it. Like if we can just elect the right guy, if we can just get the right person into power, then like they can, they can get rid of all this stuff that we don't like. They can get rid of all this craziness. They can restore some sanity. They can, they they can make things normal again, but like nobody is coming to save you. No, nobody's coming to save you. There's not one man who can solve this problem. This is not so the, this, the problems that we have are not going to be solved by an election. 
they're going to be solved by people investing in their communities. They're going to be solved by people making things more localized. They're going to be um, caused by people speaking up and speaking their minds and um, and not putting up with the craziness um, by people, you know, withdrawing into their, uh, you know, into their own communities by people, you know, actually taking steps to make things different, to make things better. And it has to be done at the local level. It has to be done at the individual level. It has to be done at the community level. Um, like, look, I'm not worried about the South. Okay. Because the South already has this community culture. Yeah. Right. Everybody like, you know, I I realize that like, it's a little bit different in Oxford because like it's, it's a small town. So it's not just the South. It's a small town in the South. But the thing is, is like, there is actual like community here. Yeah. Right. Like people, um, you know, people know you and, and the way that people identify you is people identify you in ways like, um, like, I mean, I kind of felt this way and like everybody from the North feels this way when they get asked this question. I mean, like when I moved here, one of the first questions everybody would ask me is like, where do you, where do you go to church? And I used to think like, this is like the most bizarre question because you would never talk religion with somebody you just met in the North. Like you would never ask them like, where do you, but they're not talking religion. They don't care what your religion is. What they're asking you is they know everybody at every church. And so you're new. And so they're, and they're meeting you. And so they're going to find out what church you go to. And then they're going to call their friend that goes to the same church as you and go, Hey, I just met, uh, you know, my new neighbor and you know, he goes to church with you and you know, you should go talk to him and like all that sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's community. Right. And that still exists in the South and that still exists um, in a lot of places in the Midwest. Right. It, it exists in a lot of small towns across America and people need to double down on that. People need to invest in their communities. People need to get make things more local. Remove decision making from people that are, that are very far away from you. Dismantle bureaucracies that hate you. Like th- these are the things that you that that you have to do. And there's not one man that's coming to save you. And so many people focus on on the upcoming election. And I think that the upcoming election actually just provides us with a great idea. Like if you're looking and your choice is you're running against Donald Trump who has been charged with many, many crimes and who the Democratic Party will do anything uh, that they possibly can to keep him from power against um, Joe Biden who walks around the room in the same way that like a Roomba navigates a room. I think that like you you look at that and you have to see like it's clear from that election that like nobody is coming to save you because even if you believe that Donald Trump wants to save you, you have to believe that he could, that he could fight all of these other forces within the government that, um, you know, that want to stop him and that have already demonstrated the lengths that they're willing to go to, to stop him. No, if you're, you know, no, nobody's coming to save you. You got to start taking actions, forming community and, and withdrawing from, from the craziness and dismantling all, all of this, uh, you know, all of this nonsense and, and, and stop people from engaging in, in destruction. It's well said. But the records show that we went almost an hour and a half and I did not at one point, not at any point grieve the uh, loss of Shohei Otani from the Cubs. <clears throat> the Cubs Shohei Otani era was very short lived, but it was a wonderful time and I will always cherish it. It was a fun week. It was a fun week. You know, it's better to have better to have loved and lost than never to have loved it all. And, uh, yeah, I, I will forever miss Shohei and those pinstripes. Josh, thanks for the time. No problem. Mother's Day is almost here, and you can get her the most beautiful time-tested gift around. 
a watch she can wear every day for movement. Whether your mom is into classic dress watches, rare and refined ceramics, or tried-and-true bestsellers, Movement has something she'll love. And right now, everything at Movement is up to 50% off site-wide during their Mother's Day sale. A watch is a gift that celebrates all the time you spent with mom. And a Movement watch is even more than that. Movement uses industry-leading materials for their fresh modern watch designs, from technically complex ceramics to vintage-inspired style. All for an incredible value your wrist and wallet will both love. And with one-size-fits-all convenience and fast-free shipping and returns, it's a stress-free shopping experience. Save big on the best Mother's Day gift ever with Movement. Get up to 50% off site-wide during their Mother's Day sale at MVMT.com. Again, that's up to 50% off at MVMT.com.